The Great Wall of China, 13,000 miles through deserts, jungles, and mountains. One billion bricks are in that thing. It's a communication device, but really in history, this particular wall was a way, believe it or not, of bringing people together while protecting people from a common enemy. There was a whole series of warring states in China, and there was a lot of disagreements between those states. They disagreed with what each other said, what each other did. But let me show you on the map just how divided they were. These were all the different factions. And despite their differences, the Great Wall of China was built to, to create a border around them that said, hey, we have this in common. We may have disagreements, but we have a common enemy. So let's at least agree on a way we can protect all of us and that would bring people together. As we know from history of China, China's chosen the, the general attempt of communist top-down control to bring people together, but the wall really did bring, bring people together on a common enemy and a common defense. I want to use the, the wall of China as a metaphor and propose to you that the walls around us we need walls around us. We need to build walls around us that can break down the walls between us. In the same way that that wall became a way to frame all these different factions could come together under the protection of these walls, I want to propose to you that Christianity can do something similar. That there's two ways to motivate people in a society, religious or not. One is top-down control from the outside. The other is a set of internal shared values from the inside that motivate people. I want to propose that Christianity has a very unique way of creating walls around us as a society, religious or not, that can break down the divisions between us and between our tribes. It's not to say that Christians haven't done terrible things and religion hasn't done terrible things in history, but the core values when properly affirmed and played out can really bring people together in such a way that you get, number one, an alignment to truth, or at least the idea of pursuing truth as a, as a community together. Number two, a sense of unity amongst diversity, but also a way to find the maximum amount of freedom for the maximum amount of people. I mean, here's the question that we all ask, right? Which walls, which value system is going to create an environment that the most diverse amount of people can flourish? Isn't that the question? It certainly wasn't the feudal system, and it wasn't the Hindu caste system, and it wasn't the Roman economic caste system. Certainly didn't seem to be the, the, the bourgeoisie and, and, and Nietzsche and, and Marx writing about getting people to hate each other. That didn't bring people together. What are the kind of walls or parameters around a family, around a marriage, around a whole state that can make the most diverse amount of people flourish? And I want to propose to you there's three types of walls we can build individually and as a society to bring people together rather than dividing people apart. The first one is I want to propose that we need to build walls that break down smaller roles. How can we build walls that break down the smaller walls, right? Every marriage, every family knows you disagree on stuff. Different ways that you should do the toilet paper, to different ways you should parent kids, different ways you spend the money. How do we build walls around us that say, hey, whatever we're going to disagree in, there's a common value system that we're, gonna, we're in this together. We're going to at least listen to each other when we disagree. We're going to respect each other, even if we don't think the other person's idea is particularly good. There are walls we build of common behavior that allow us within our disagreements to operate with joy and with relationship, despite our differences. And this is where Christianity offers something very unique. The main message of the Bible is that the God of heaven came down to earth through the person of Jesus Christ to die for people who disagreed with him. Who, who hated him, who pushed him off. 
And, and it says in this particular passage in the Bible that when God comes to earth, he, he came to break down the walls between us. Isn't that fascinating? For he himself is our peace. And this is a Hebrew word translated into Greek, shalom. God wanted to bring shalom to his world of chaos, bring order to the chaos. And he did that through the personal relationship of himself. And by doing that, he broke down the wall of separation between us and God. So as a God follower, you say, well, if God was willing to break down walls between me and him, or he and I, then maybe I could be motivated to break down walls between people I disagree with politically, people I disagree with in, in my family and the tension we have going on. If there really is a creator of the universe who did that for me, then maybe I could be motivated to try and build the same kind of spirit around other people that I'm willing to apologize, I'm willing to go the extra mile, I'm willing to say, hey, where do we have common ground? So this is where, even if you don't believe the United States was a Christian nation, it certainly is built on Christian principles that create some parameters that the most diverse amount of people could flourish. Let me just give you eight of those. Here's our eight principles that became some of those internal value system that can motivate diverse people to get along with each other. Number one, we all have a common creator. It doesn't matter what religion you are. doesn't even matter if you don't have religion. All through history, this idea is called a magio deo. Every single human being is made in God's image. It immediately unifies us to say, listen, whatever we agree or disagree on, let's not forget we all are made in God's image and have value. It brings people together. Number two is we have a common ancestor. Now, the Bible calls it Adam and Eve. If you don't believe in that, even the, the Human Genome Project who studied uh, DNA showed that if you trace our DNA back, we all have a common ancestor. Mitochondria, Adam and Eve, they call it. But the whole being is that whatever we disagree on, whatever we don't like that each other do, whether you're a Windows person or Apple's person or you're a Republican person or a Democrat person, we're family. We have a common ancestor. And so as family, you kind of learn to get along even though you don't always agree. You see how that would bring you together, the parameter of our family? We have a common problem. No matter who you are, no matter where you live, no matter what your background is, we all face death. We have a common enemy in death, and we need, that brings us together to say, well, how do we defeat that, and, and how do we be humbled by that? We have common rights. Within a, a diverse culture, we have the right to speak, the right to listen to each other, the, the right to express religion, the, the right to speak our minds. These were common values motivated by a Christian worldview that could allow diverse people to flourish. And lastly, common values. God says that he put in every human heart, religious or not, a set of golden rule, a set of right or wrong, a set of justice. When somebody cuts between you in line, you say, hey, hey, you know you shouldn't do that. You're, you appeal to a should because God gave a common set of values to all of us to dialogue with. It's a lot to build on. And those walls of common values create an environment for diverse people to flourish. And that certainly happened in China. So you may not know this man. His name is Hudson Taylor. Probably not well known, but probably the most influential person on Eastern-Western relationship in human history. Probably prior to Richard Nixon, 100 years later, who opened up the Eastern Front to Western influence, 100 years before him, Hudson Taylor did it. He was a really meek man who studied as a medical doctor, and he felt compelled to go to China. 
wearing his, his British outfit, he immediately was mocked because he just didn't fit into the Chinese culture. So he practiced what we now know in marketing as contextualization. He said, well, why do I dress like a Brit if I'm in China? He began to dress like the culture of its day, contextualizing the message. As he did, he began to give away medical care because in the impoverished country of, of, of China, there was the haves and the have-nots with the communist control, so he found ways to go and to offer his medical care to anyone who'd have him, and he began to get a following. He saw there was a lot of lack of education in China, so he began to build schools, one, two. He built 125 schools. He saw what's called the China Inland Mission. He began to give out adoptive services and educational services and, and just to help people wherever he went. In fact, his influence was so great that people began to say, well, what motivates you to do this? Our government's not motivated to do this. Why do you care about everybody? You're a different color skin than us. you got a different color background than us. He said, well, I'm a follower of Jesus. And because Jesus says, whoever that we help, Jesus has a parable about helping people who are sick because you're really helping him. And people get drawn to Christianity, and the East gets opened up to the Western influence of Christianity because of this man in the 1800s, 1901-ish, covers his lifespan. Well, then there's what's called the Boxer Rebellion, which is really the government and others pushing back against Christianity. And when they do, his schools and his mission get destroyed. And they're found guilty, and, and he and his mission and property is due a certain amount of money for the damage done. And shockingly, in order to build rapport with the Chinese people he loves, he refuses to take any money for the destroyed property from the Boxer Rebellion, which even more endears the people that this rebellion was based on control and trying to push out this influence that was helping so many people. And he becomes the most influential person in China to reach people for God because he created this common set of values that transcended culture and background and politics and cared for people in the name of Jesus. He was building walls that broke down the smaller walls of socioeconomic issues as people came to find a God who cares for everyone. Second time walls kind of show up in the Bible is a man named Nehemiah. And here we find that God calls us to build walls that bring peace or shalom to as many people as possible. That the goal of a Christ follower, a person who follows Jesus, is not just to kind of create their own little holy huddle and do their own thing, but it's to actually use their resources, their time, their education to, to bless and impact the whole community, people who agree with them religiously and people who don't to build walls around your community that will infuse peace and shalom to all. So this guy named Nehemiah, and he was living in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem has been ransacked. And as it's been ransacked, he and his country was, uh, was conquered by the Babylonians during a 70-year very bad time. Then the Persians came along and conquered the Babylonians. And meanwhile, his hometown has been devastated for 70-plus years, probably 100 years at this point, and he feels like he wants to go back and help build a city that will help people flourish. Let me show you what Nehemiah says in this project. He says, you see the distress we're in now? Good leader, define reality. Things are not good. There's distress here. What's going on? Jerusalem lies in waste. Our hometown has been devastated for years. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. He gets a group of people together and says, let's build a community. In almost every society, the first way you would build a community is you would build walls so those inside the walls could feel protected to do commerce, protected in order to have families, protected from outside influences. So Nehemiah says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem. 
that we may no longer be a reproach. It's embarrassing. We're supposed to be God's people, and we can't even put any money or resource into building our own city. We're not flourishing. We're a reproach. The hand of God has been good upon me. He's a very wealthy man. He's working as basically the kind of the wine tester for the king of Persia, Nehemiah, a very influential man, very wealthy, a lot of great leadership. The hand of the Lord has been upon me, and also the king's words that he has spoken to me. This guy's such a leader. He convinces the king of Persia to not only send him to Jerusalem to rebuild it, but he talks the king of Persia into financing the whole deal. Now that's a salesman right there. So he's heading to a foreign nation, and he's got the king who's been so impressed with his leadership in the administration of Persia. He's like, listen, if that's something important to you, I'll finance it. So he tells him about how the king's been part of that, and he spoke to me. So he turns to his leaders, all the people he's brought down there, let's rise up and build. And they set their hands to the good work. It was a good work creating a place. And there's going to be Jews and Gentiles living there, people who believe in God and people who don't. How do we create a place, a wall around this place that business can flourish, that people can flourish, that marriages can flourish, that we have the maximum amount of shalom or peace? Isn't that beautiful? If you hang around here at Horizon long enough, you're going to find that we don't just show up here on a Sunday morning to learn about Jesus, the, the Bible, or, or talk about our faith. People all through our community are using their skills to try and make our city and our world a better place. Whether it's the medical services and the teams you hear about that are going to Belize and we give away millions of dollars with the free services in Belize in the name of Jesus. Whether it's our work with City Gospel Mission or Interparish Ministries. But even beyond that, it's just individuals in our church who use their skills to say, how do we create a great city, the city of Cincinnati? And how can I use my influence to create a place that brings the maximum amount of shalom or peace to the whole city? I got a chance to experience that firsthand a few weeks ago. I was at a fundraiser, and they're asking me to pray for it, so I came to pray. And as I was there, I just noticed it was horizon person, horizon person, horizon person, horizon person. And it reminded me, I'd seen this whole group and others 15 years ago, I guess, when this endeavor began. Some folks from our church were trying to get good medical care, and specifically mental health care. And they realized that there's just not a lot of places in the country to find good medical health care for depression, for suicide, for other challenging issues. And so as we were there, um, the vision was cast 15 years ago. What if, what if people from Horizon, people from our city, who just loved our city and wanted to offer some of the best mental health care in the country, what if we tried to build something like that here? And so sure enough, I was there at the grand opening 15 years ago for the Linder Center of Hope, and it was designed to be a top-notch research center to help people of the community. And it, again, it was people at our church who said, we want to be part of doing this, because the business model is very hard to maintain, the, the, the costs that come in from insurance and others in no way pay for your expenses. And while we were there, uh, Brad Johansson, you may know Brad, who used to be a newscaster, he shared a powerful personal story about his son, who's in his 20s. As he got up to share, he got all choked up and could barely speak as he said that his son had struggled with issues of mental health and some, some depression and some other misdiagnosed things, and that in his 20s, he thought he was going to lose his son. And the best medical care he got or mental health care he got is he's bipolar, there's nothing we can do. And there are several instances they almost lost their son because of the ramifications of that. Now he'd come to this place, started by people in our church and, and others, and the diagnosis was wrong, 
and they'd reached and found some medical things that were different, some medicine that would work, and he said, this place saved my life. Because a group of people in our church, I believe in our city, they wanted to create a place that would inspire others. And what you're going to find historically is that the most amount of charitable giving to religious and irreligious causes comes from Christians. That's just a fact. You're going to look through our city and you're going to find from the arts to music to mental health to medicine, you're just going to see Christ followers almost always at the forefront or in the, in the backlight of these kind of endeavors. Because of this mandate from Christianity to tell us as followers to pursue peace for all people. Like I told you, Persia conquered Babylon. Before Persia showed up, God gave the same mandate to his people going to Babylon through the book, uh, the book of Jeremiah. He says, listen, I'm going to let you get carried away by Babylon. But while you're there, I don't want you to imitate the culture of Babylon, but I don't want you to isolate yourself from the culture of Babylon. I want you to integrate into the culture. And as people with different value systems, I want you to try and make a difference. Build houses while you're in Babylon. Dwell in those houses. Plant beautiful gardens. Eat the fruit of that garden. Make a life there. You're going to be there for 70 years. Take wives, beget sons and daughters. And the main thing I want you to think about as a citizen of Babylon who has a totally different value system is how can I work within that system to seek the shalom of the city? I caused you to be carried away here. I know you don't like being there. You're away from home. But I want you to pray to God for the peace of the city of Babylon, your enemies. When it has peace, you'll have peace. That's what Christians did. Christians came with different values to almost every culture, a value of life, whether it was saving the, the infanticide that was going on with the Romans or, or the, the, the commitment to life in the, in the culture of abortion or whether it was uh, caring for the handicapped or the poor. Christians have always had this kind of countercultural value living in a culture that doesn't always agree with them on a whole b- bunch of things. But how can I work within that culture to do what's best for everyone, best for the city? But Christianity offers another unique resource that helps you pursue the peace of all people because not everybody agrees and even those issues I mentioned. What do you do when somebody disagrees with you vehemently? And what does Christianity offer that could be helpful to that? This is where Jesus shows up. Jesus says even if you totally disagree with someone on everything, you should still love your enemies. Love your political enemies. Love your family enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies. The parameter by which I want you to operate is even people you vehemently disagree with. Don't just tolerate them, befriend them and love them. And by doing so, you're going to act like you're a son of your heavenly father who loves people who vehemently disagree with him. And think about God, Jesus says. The God of the heavens, he makes it rain on just people and unjust people, right? He doesn't just make it rain on good people. He rains on everybody. In the same way, I want you to rain goodness and blessing and joy on everybody. And by doing so, people are going to see that's different. People who love their political enemies, people who love people who they vehemently disagree with that argument, but they still care about them. It's just going to be a counterculture that's just going to transform families and marriages and history, and it did. Building walls that seek the peace of all. And what a unique resource to bring into conversations, whether it's a marriage conflict or a a family conflict, even if we disagree, even if I think you're dead wrong, even if they think, what kind of an idiot thinks like that? I also could be wrong. I also might not have 100% of the facts. Jesus died for me for being wrong, and whatever my friend has brought up might be one of those things Jesus died for me in, so I should be 
humble and teachable in this conversation. It's just a unique resource. However, on the other side, Christianity says that you are to build walls that align people to truth. That there is such a thing as truth, and if we were humble enough to say we don't always know we have it, there is something called truth, and the closer you are to truth, the truth can set you free, Jesus says. So how do we build walls in conversations and how we dialogue what is true, what is right, what's a better idea? How do we build walls that align people to truth? So again, God shows up now through a prophet named Amos. And in those days, you would be building a wall with bricks. And you got to keep your bricks level, right? So if you used a level, that means they're all going, you know, the same way this direction. But how do you keep them even this direction? So you're not building the wall, and the next one, next one, you end up like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. How do you make sure it's, it's plumb, straight up and down? Well, you use a plumb line. So when they were building a wall, God sent Amos to drop a plumb line next to their walls as a metaphor for their life. Behold, the Lord stood on a wall made with a plumb line, and had a plumb line in his hand. A plumb line is just a, like a string with a weight on it. Here's straight up and down. Here's gravity. Your wall is starting to sway this way or starting to go this way. It's not plumb. And God was saying, in the same way your walls aren't plumb, your life isn't plumb. Here's the truth. And the farther you get away from truth, the less free you're going to be. Oh, you might think you're free, but you're giving over to indulgences. You're giving over to, to any old whim. You're going to find yourself less free because you're controlled by everything but the truth. So is it true that in any way in a society you can align yourself to truth? Well, part of the challenge we have today is we're living in a postmodern world which says nothing's true, you can't know anything's true, so it's really hard to even have this discussion. And so our culture says, you know, the, this is why Chad's wrong, this is why what he's saying is wrong. Christianity's the problem. Because they make exclusive truth claims, they divide people. We just need to get rid of anyone who makes exclusive truth claims. Right? You've heard that before. You've thought that. If we could just get rid of the people who make exclusive truth claims, then we would have a good society. Let me tell you why that may not work. Every single religion, every single philosophy, every single conversation makes exclusive truth claims. Even the idea you shouldn't make exclusive truth claims is an exclusive truth claim. You shouldn't make them. Just give me an example. Exclusive truth claims. Secularists exclusively claim evolutionary Darwinism. Romans exclusively claim might makes right. Hindus exclusively say karma. That's why the universe is punishing because of karma. LGBTQ, gender theory, exclusive truth claim. Socialists, collectivism. Capitalists, self-interest. Christians, moral guilt and forgiveness. Buddhists, dream personhood. Islamics, determinism. Everybody makes exclusive truth claims. So the question is not, are we going to have exclusive truth claims? It's how do we create an environment in our family, in our nation, in a culture that we can test each other's exclusive truth claims to see which one most corresponds to reality, which one most lines up to what's true, which one is testable and provable. You're not going to get rid of exclusive truth claims. And you can't even act like it for a day. Every day we function as if there's things that are right and wrong and true when we appeal or converse. And Martin Luther King knew this. If you've done much reading Martin Luther King, my favorite um, writing he has is The Letter from an Alabama Jail. If you've never read it, pick it up this afternoon and read it. It is just genius. So he says, I'm living in a culture that has laws, right? These are the law of the land, and the laws make differentiation between people based on race, that people of different skin color have different value. 
That's the law of the land. However, he says, these laws do not square with the law of God. There's a higher law, a more truthful law. So I am working to break the unjust laws as he discusses them as we pursue the truth of making the society's laws in line with God's laws. And he pontificates on this and quotes Christian thinkers like Augustine and Augustus on this idea that you need to have truth. And even if you're humble enough to say, I don't know all the truth, we're pursuing truth. And pursuing truth is finding what of these ideas most corresponds to reality. And by doing that, as a Christian pastor, he was able to transform our society by dialoguing, didn't want to use violence, but dialoguing through civil disobedience at times to say, listen, we, we, we cannot let these unjust laws go by. He was trying to align the laws of the land to the just law of God. And he did it in a powerful way. So the question is, how do you know of all those exclusive true claims, how do you know which ones are true and which ones are false, or which ones are more true and which ones are less true, right? You've got to create a, a place where we can have open dialogue to test these things and, and be open that you might be wrong and be open that that person might be half right or mostly right. You've got to have some humility. So let me go back to the Great Wall of China. It's interesting on the Great Wall because there's places in the Great Wall that look solid, but they're not. This thing is 16 feet across in most locations. And so what was the genius of the wall is that at times it, it always looks like it's 8 to 16 feet thick. However, many times when the bandits would come and they would go to attack the wall, they would find what they thought was a spot they could just bombard over and over again and break through. But as they were trying to break through the wall, there would be, to their surprise, the Chinese weren't just in front of them on the wall, the Chinese were suddenly behind them, surrounding them. How did we get ambushed from behind when we're attacking them in front of us? Because though the wall looks solid all the way through, there's several sections in the Great Wall of China that are only one brick deep. They were called breakout sections. And the Chinese knew that if someone started to attack them one part of the wall through a whole system of lights, they would send a communication down to the next breakaway spot. And they would send out a whole garrison of armies that could break through this, this breakaway piece of the wall that looked thick but it wasn't. And they could sneak up around behind the army and crush them in between. Now that's pretty genius. But that meant that when you looked at the wall, everything wasn't as solid as it appeared. And that's really the idea of dialoguing what's true, is everything is solid as it appears. Is it okay to test theories? Is it okay to explain? Is it okay to be open to feedback? Is it okay to say, listen, I hear you make that claim. Could you help explain that to me? Or could you try and convince me? Or are you open to other ideas? We were down in Belize uh, about 10 years ago. And we were, you know, painting and helping, giving medical care. And so I was part of the painting team, and I was doing magic for the, the kids while their parents were getting surgeries and stuff. And as I was painting one day, somebody said, Chad, you've got to go paint over in that building. I said, why is that? You've got to talk to this guy. Oh, well, I love talking to people. So I start painting, and, and I'd heard that this guy had been pretty belligerent toward every volunteer who'd been there. But I wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. I said, well, what's he saying? Well, just go listen. But he's very self-righteous. I said, all right. So I go, and we're painting. Hey, I'm Chad. Nice to meet you. He goes, what's well, nice to meet you? I'm Rick the Buddhist. Well, hey, Rick the Buddhist. It's nice to meet you. Why do you call yourself Rick the Buddhist? Because I'm a Buddhist. Clever. All right, well, it worked out pretty well. So we're painting together, and he begins to kind of tell, tell me his story about being a Buddhist and, and how great it is and how he doesn't judge anybody. I said, well, that's, I appreciate the tolerance and humility, and, and no idea is right or wrong, and there's 
nothing we should ever evaluate, everything, just let, let go and, 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 and let live and kind of this laissez-faire approach to everything, which I kind of like the spirit of it, but I'm also like, hmm, let's test that wall, see if that works out. I said, well, are you open to dialogue? He said, sure. I said, well, so you would say that we should never judge anybody of anything. He's like, that's right. And you would say it would be the best society if we never judge or evaluate any idea. That is right, because I'm Rick the Buddhist. Oh, great, Rick. I said, well, um, I'm not an expert in Buddhism, but I've studied a little bit. I said, if you're saying it's never, it's always good to affirm everybody's individual idea, what if I told you that I'm a masochist, and I enjoy giving pain to other people, and I'm going to pick up that hammer, and see that guy over there? I'm going to go run over and bash that guy's head in with this hammer, because it brings me great joy. Would you see anything wrong with that? Uh, uh, well, I wouldn't say it was wrong. Well, what would you say? I wouldn't encourage it. Why? It makes me happy. It makes me happy to bash people's heads in with hammers. I was showing him his idea does not play out. I'm not really masochist, not really bashing people, for those watching at home. I said, well, by the way, I said, I don't know a lot about Buddhism, but are you open to me testing some of those theories? He said, yeah. I said, well, my understanding is that Buddhism teaches that attachment leads to suffering. Because that's right. I said, my understanding then is that Buddha taught that that's why we shouldn't have attachments. So yeah. I said, I thought you said you were married. I am. I said, I, I hope you're celibate. Now, now he's listening. I said, you know, he allowed for, for having, being intimate with your spouse, but really, if you were really serious about Buddhism, you were celibate because to attach to another person is to cause suffering in the world. So I hope you can come home tonight and tell your wife, like, I'm sorry, that's it, honey. We're going to take our Buddhism more seriously. No, I don't think I'm going to do that. Oh, okay, right, well, I'm just I'm curious how serious you are in your Buddhism. And so we had this great dialogue, and it, it was very fun. We went on for several days, and he asked me questions. But, but I, what I was doing is I was leaning in and saying, are you sure your belief that never judging anything really works out? Mm, probably not. Can we have a dialogue where we can push on ideas and see what works and what doesn't? But can we do it with a spirit of humility? And can we say that our relationships are more important than any particular issue we have? That's why Christianity shows up and says, yes, the walls around us can break down the walls between us, right? We need those walls. We need those, those guidelines, those principles that they're going to allow us to operate in our family, in our marriage. But what does it look like for you and I to build walls that bring people together, not divide people apart? Right? How can we, there's probably a conflict going on right now in your life between you and somebody. And how can you build walls that say, hey, whatever we disagree on, how can we come together here? The Bible shows up in the book of Romans and says, if it's possible, it's not always possible. As much as it depends on you, go first. Try and live peaceably, shalom-like among all people. And here's why Christianity offers a motivation for that. Imagine like going to boot camp, right? All different diversity, all different background. You go to boot camp and you find pretty quickly in boot camp, you have one thing in common. You might die in battle. And so the most important thing that unifies you is we are coming face-to-face with death and we need to keep each other alive. Our politics, our background, our race, our differences, our opinions are all subordinated now to the greater mission of life and death. Jesus does the same thing. No matter what differences we have, we have something in common. Death is the ultimate enemy we all face. And Jesus came and said he offers life to anyone who would believe in him. That brings a level of humility and a lot of unity even if the other person doesn't agree with that, you're coming 
to the conversation saying, I want to be humble and I want to bring unity. How can we bring us together? I had one of those uh, last couple years. I was, I got a friend of mine who's a lawyer and he has the spiritual love language. He has a love language, kind of how you communicate, gifts of service, appreciation. His love language is arguing profusely. Now, I don't prefer that love language, but I, apparently the few people who will dialogue with him, so I hadn't seen him in a couple of years. I, I come by his house on the way to another trip, and he has a little bit too much wine, and he begins to deluge me on every hot topic. And he and I don't come to the same conclusions on things. He decides to come at me on abortion. And I'm like, let's not talk about that. It's just good to hang out. No, I want to talk to you about this. And just, doo, doo, doo. And again, my son was almost killed in an abortion clinic. So my son, Quinn, was, we adopted him because his mother had cried her way out of an abortion clinic. And we were delighted at great sacrifice to ourselves to love him. And, to, and so I feel personal about this. And, and, but I don't talk about it so many not interested. So he's asking me questions. And I'm giving the philosophical reasons and the scientific reasons. And again, he loves this stuff. But his wife's in the room. I know does not share my opinion. And I could just see in my dialogue with her husband, while I'm just answering his questions, I could see the tension it was creating. Uh, I left, and about two years later, about six months ago, I got invited to come and uh, perform the wedding for their kids. So I was up in New York performing the wedding, and I've been thinking about that conversation for two years. You know, in the middle of a wedding, there's just all kinds of busyness and all kinds of hoopla, and, and I just had five minutes where I saw Elizabeth. I said, hey, can I talk to you for a second? And she was a delight, by the way. I said, can I talk to you about something? She said, sure. I said, so I've been thinking about this for two years. I said, uh, I'm just afraid that that conversation we had two years ago, hurt or destroyed our friendship. And I want you to know that I feel pretty strongly about this issue, but our friendship is more important to me than being right. She was kind of taken aback. It was kind of this quick one-minute conversation. I didn't realize how emotional I was going to get saying it. And she looked at me, and she just put her arms around me. She said, thank you so much. She goes, I haven't been that mad about it, but it was a tense moment. I know we do disagree, but, man, I want you to know our friendship as couples, our friendship means more to me too. It was just a way of creating those parameters, saying, hey, we may disagree, and I'm open for you giving me your best arguments because I'll listen. I hope you're open to my best arguments, but... Let's make the friendship, our relationship, more important than any individual issue. What kind of families would we have? What kind of marriages would we have? What kind of society would we have if we just brought that degree of humility to bear? I'll invite the band to come out. It's probably a song you recognize. But I think it's a song that calls us to do just that. To say, it doesn't matter who you are or how simple you are to the person that you're roommate with or that you live with or that you, that you work with. We all got disagreements. Is it okay for us to say, we still love each other. We still care for each other. We, we still can work together or, or be with each other and truly befriend each other, even and especially when we disagree. Well, let me pray for us. Maybe you want to pray, God, there's somebody I disagree with right now. And I'm not real motivated to bridge the gap. But God, help me. Help me see that you bridge the gap for me. At great cost to yourself. Even dying to bridge that gap. I receive that into my life. And help me to do just a piece of that 
in this relationship I'm thinking of. To apologize first. God, I'm opening to listening better. I'm open to letting go of a grudge for the sake of a marriage or a friendship or relationship. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.